We have right here on the line a very special guest. It's been a long time since we've welcomed him back on TSC, about eight years or so ago. Fun fact, I even used to intern under this guy. He's not just a guy, though. He is the legend, one of the greatest MMA fighters of all time. And now he's a man taking his free time and helping others, leaving a positive impact. I'm talking about the former UFC and Strikeforce champion, Frank Shamrock. Frank, how's it going? Man, it's going good, Fred. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Now, I remember just a few years ago, we saw you everywhere. Of course, you you were a legendary fighter. Then you retired from fighting. We're doing commentary for Strikeforce. Strikeforce got bought up by the UFC. I saw you a few times on Bellator and, and Fightmaster. I saw you on some different specials on documentaries. And then all of a sudden, I'm not saying you went incognito, but we saw a heck of a lot less Frank Shamrock. And I think the first question in everybody's mind is, what's Frank been up to? <laughs> well, I, uh, you know, I, I had such a successful run and I achieved all my dreams and I really, uh, had accomplished those, those, those goals I set out both in sports and business. Um, and then I, you know, was sitting at home and realizing that I didn't get to have a good childhood or, or teach a good childhood to my children. So, uh, I just stopped everything and focused on raising my daughter. And I got uh, about eight years at home, just completely. I did work on the side and I kept the brands going. And I did stuff here and there, like make the bipolar rock and roller movie and other things. Um, but for the most part, I drive my daughter to school every day. I have dinner every night at home. Like I have completely uh, changed my existence to uh, be there for my daughter. That's just changed my life. That, that's pretty awesome. Now, I got to ask you, what's harder, being a UFC champion or raising a daughter? You know, I'm going to say they're comparable, uh, but there's so much more pleasure in, in the daughtering and the being a, a father and a present parent. And, and uh, you know, the one thing I hadn't realized, because I have kids 20 years apart, is that the bond between a father and a daughter is so different and is so valuable and is so important. Um, and it, it grew both in value and, and, for me, awareness. Like, I could see how valuable it was, and I could see how a man guides a daughter to become a woman and that's the next generation so i went all, i went all in you sure did does, does she realize who her dad is yet or, or is she still kind of figuring yeah. out like what are, what are all these shiny things on your mantle she does now because she's you know she's uh finishing elementary school and she knows because all of the kids tell her and in the beginning she would just you know be like dad why do all these people come and bow to you and they're really really nice and i was like well you know i was a martial arts champion and i would tell her the stories to kind of preface uh her mind uh but now she realizes all those stories are true and i <laughs> i am that guy <laughs> now, now from what i understand i listen to a lot of dave Meltzer's podcast i think he mentioned once or twice that you actually represent moro ronaldo on the agent side of things i do yeah, I care for Moro. He's one of my best friends, and uh, he is my client. That's pretty cool. You guys are best friends. Of course, you were commentating partners. Now you're his agent. Is he your only client, or, or is he kind of the, the, the first domino to drop in what could be you know, the Frank Shamrock agency? No, technically, I'm a manager. Manager, and, sorry. Um, and um, I, uh, uh, no, he is my only client. I, um, I had the MMA stars talent management business, which was made for the fighters. I created it when I was uh, guiding AKA and I used it to, to get everybody protected and under contract and, you know, developmental. But when I, you know, when we started exiting strike force, um, you know, it wasn't right for me to have talent and a management and, and to intertwine all these things. 
Um, so I gave up the uh, fighter management. Plus, it was a lot of work, and there wasn't you know a lot of money back then. Uh, but as I was shutting down that company, I ran into Moro. I just happened to end up you know broadcasting next to him on Showtime. Um, and he started asking about business. I started telling him what I you know what I do and what I've done for talent. And he's you know after about six months, he's like, man, you could probably help me. And so I just started helping him as a friend. And then um, you know that was eleven years ago, and I started helping Moro. Wow, and, and and you look back at Moro and, and you guys commentating Strike Force, and here we are all these years later. Moro's doing NXT. He did SmackDown Live. He's commentated some of the biggest boxing matches on Showtime and Showtime Pay Per View. Is there anything that's kind of surprised you about his reach? Because he's already had a, a great career, and I feel like ever since Strike Force, it's gotten only bigger. Oh yeah, no, nothing, nothing has surprised me about Moro's uh, talent and and what he's been able to accomplish. He's the most talented voice artist broadcaster I've ever seen in my life. And I've worked with the best of them. Um, but that's one of the reasons why I also decided to help him. It's like, I knew for a fact he would be successful if he could just get his help and his business and his life in order, you know, the, the important, the other stuff. Um, I mean, I, I have never seen somebody so talented. He can play piano by ear. Uh, you know, he sings like you guys are just seeing the beginning of Moro. And in truth, Moro is just at the beginning of his career. This is, this is just scraping the top of it for, for him. Well, we're certainly looking forward to seeing that piano album coming out sometime soon on, <laughs> on, on Spotify. And, and we were talking off the air about marketing because I happen to also work in digital marketing. You, of course, are a brand in yourself, man. I mean, you're a guy that truly did, the, I, I think, the first real viral marketing back in the day for MMA with, with, with Strikeforce. Uh, I believe you did some great viral marketing with, with Cesar Gracie, with Nick Diaz. There was yep. one, if I, if I remember correctly, that was over a decade ago. You had like a, a guy pretend to be Phil Baroni and you, you, stre- and you, and you stretched them on the mat. Uh, when, when, you were doing these, oh, yeah. when you were doing these hilarious videos in the early days of YouTube and MySpace, which quite frankly drew some real money, uh, did you know what you were tapping into at the time, or was this just something that you said, "Hey, you know what? I got a camera. You know, I'm, I'm a funny guy. Let's let's hype this fight." Um, I I knew that it should work. I didn't know if it was going to work, um, but it made sense that it did that it would work because we had all this technology suddenly. You know, whereas before we'd have to have a network come in or a camera crew or all this other stuff. Uh, so I was just very lucky to be in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area doing all of my fighting and all of my counterparts were techie. So we were, you know, always looking to grow the sport, make it bigger. And, you know, the end goal was to try to get to network television because that's where the big money was. That's where the recognition as a real sport was. So I knew it should work, but I didn't really know if it would work until we got until we got going. Until Showtime was like, I want to buy that footage from you for this fight. Then I was like, aha. Now, now I get it. Now it's all, now it's all working. Yeah, the, the, that stuff was hilarious, and it still holds up to this day. So, if any MMA fans are hearing this, watching this, definitely seek it, definitely seek it out on YouTube. And I'm not sure how much you follow pro wrestling. Obviously, you're, you're real tight with Moro, and, and you see what he's doing with NXT and, and WWE. But the Young Bucks, Cody Rhodes, as part of the Bullet Club, which is one of the most probably the most popular stable in, in pro wrestling right now, they held an independent show called All In back in September 2018 that drew 11,000 fans with essentially no television promotion. For the most part, it was all kind of online, viral marketing. They have a a weekly YouTube show. And over the course of the last couple of years, there's been a real boom in North America and even in the UK 
when it comes to independent wrestling. And I, and I look at it, and I'm thinking, man, like, there's all these MMA companies that are getting TV contracts, okay, and they're getting that guaranteed money, but they're not necessarily drawing the crowds or creating consistent interest. Do you think that a lot of MMA companies out there right now could take some of the lessons that you provided when you were building those strike force fights and still be successful to this day, even in an oversaturated market? Totally. Cause it still comes down to good storytelling, um, you know, to your right audience and then, you know, like giving them good shows and having a good payoff still comes down to good, good entertainment and good content. Who taught you how to tell a story? Was it something that just kind of came natural to you? Or, or was there somebody that really kind of taught you the, the gift of gab? <laughs> well, I learned, <laughs> strangely enough, by watching pro wrestling. And then, before I was a pro wrestler, studier, I was a criminal. So I learned to talk my way out of crime. I learned to get out of things. I learned to, you know, in Japan, they call it the old nanny wambashi, where you tell a story to move the needle. I, I learned to do that as a, a survival mechanism. So when I saw wrestling and I saw what was going on with, with the development and I could see the stories, when I went into fighting, I saw stories bigger, you know, as much as fights, because uh, they were in my mind. I was like, we have to tell stories or no one will care. No one cared about me. I grew up on the street. So I figured no one would care unless there was a really good story. And it just sort of grew. You know, people cared when there was a story. So we would tell stories, you know, we'd make up stories if need be, or even shoot a video if need be. Um, but that's where I first got it. Now I realize it's all about stories. No story, no show. Like, you don't go to the movies for, you know, a, a, a great action scene. You go there for a story. Right. Yeah, that, 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 that's true. And was there anybody in pro wrestling that you had your eye on that you said, man, I want to emulate? Or did you take a little bit of everything from everybody? I took a little bit from everybody. And then uh, boxing as well. Boxing was a big base for me. It was the first sport I ever watched. It was the first television where i sat down and, and watched the story unfold and you know that that champion guy with his arm raised and then you know him with the microphone delivering the message uh all of those components were you know became part of my character for sure and i feel like that's really lost in today's mma i, th I think bellator for the most part tries to do a really good job of that but but it might be tough these days because while they have their broadcast on paramount now some of them are shifting to the zone which is kind of a streaming, which is a streaming service, but kind of inclusive. You know what I mean, or or, or exclusive, I, sh I should say. You know what I mean, it, it, not everybody's gonna necessarily sign up for that. With UFC, they're running fights every single week. With, with all the MMA that's going on right now, do you feel like UFC and, and Bellator and some of these other promotions can consistently keep up the interest, or does it have to go back to more of the old days? I hate to say the old days; it makes us sound real old. But you know, just a few years ago, where there's a fight every month as opposed to every couple weeks. I mean, I think there's a, we're hitting an oversaturation point, you know, where, where only stars draw now in the sport. And, you know, that, that says there's just too much. Um, so I think what's going to happen is either the talent develops more or the companies spend a little more on the talent developmental. Um, but I think there's a lack of talent. So, you know, there's a lack of good, good presentation. Are you surprised that... Back in September 24th, 1999, you had maybe the greatest comeback in MMA history against Tito Ortiz. Great fight, legendary fight. And here we are all these years later, and Tito Ortiz is still fighting. <laughs> yeah, I, that's like a miracle in and of itself. <laughs> I watched it, uh, and uh, you know, two old guys beating each other up. 
But, um, you know, God bless him for getting in there. I mean, I was at 38, I felt like a truck had hit me a few times and dragged me down the road. And I there's no way I could keep doing it. Uh, and that was a lot of it. I didn't feel good, you know, anymore. 16 years, and I felt terrible. And these guys, you know, it's, it's amazing that they're still going. It's, 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 pretty, it's pretty crazy to think about. But I, I will say this, even though I didn't like the – Liddell Ortiz three fight just because I don't think anybody really wanted to see Liddell get hurt or anything like that. I look at Tito's Bellator run and I'm not sure how much you, you followed it, but he had a hell of a run. And I think a lot of that had to do yeah. with your old colleague, Scott Coker, who does a, does a great job matching legends with other legends. We just had Fedor Milianenko against Chael Sonnen. That was a fun fight. I mean, maybe not so much for Chael's head, but you know, it was kind of an even matchup, right? It wasn't Fedor being fed to a young guy or an unknown getting, getting knocked out. For the most part, I feel like Bellator more often than not, and to a lesser extent, Strikeforce back in the day did a better job of booking these MMA legends people want to see win. Why do you think that's lost on UFC these days? Uh, I, they're focused on one thing, and that's, you know, the UFC brand and making that, you know, awesome. Uh, so their formula is simple. Best versus the best. You know, if the, if the fans want, they just plug them together. Like they literally just glue things together. Um, but they need to keep interest in a brand. They need to keep, you know, the fans happy because there's so much now. So I think it's more of, hey, you know, if people want it. It's going to happen because that's where the money comes from. I think that's, you know, one of the interesting things about our sport. If you're a fan, you know, you can expect exciting things to happen because it has to happen you know, keep everybody into it and, 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 you know, along the journey. Now, fun fact, we talked about this off air as well. I was a production assistant on your documentary with Ken Shamrock, Bound by Blood, which aired on Spike TV, now Paramount Network, several years ago. Phenomenal documentary. If you guys have never seen it, I'm sure it's flowing around online somewhere, which chronicled your life story, Ken's life story, and at the end had a real emotional moment where you guys finally squashed your beef. It's hard to believe it's been five, six years since that special. How's your relationship with Ken now? Uh, it's, it's the same. Uh, it, didn't, it, it didn't progress uh, and it didn't regress. It's just the same, um, which is we don't really have a relationship. So, <laughs> I see him at events. I, co- I cornered him for Hoist, uh, but I think that was more of, you know, to get some media. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, the truth is like, we never developed, we never spent the time to develop a relationship, but now there's all this other stuff in the way. I just don't know the guy, mm-hmm. you know, I know, I know my neighbor a lot better. So it's just weird. And now we don't, I, I think as adults, we don't know how to get back, um, to that. So, and I say I'm an event, so we shake hands. It's weird. So, so there's no animosity. It just, there's not a real relationship there given you know, how long the estrangement was. Yeah, no, I mean, I didn't talk to him for 15 years. So I don't, you know, we just, we're on two different islands. Um, we've never been able to, you know, meet up. But it's not, yeah, it's not, not unpleasant in any way. You know, I mean, I was excited to see him wrestle and do his thing. And so it just, uh, yeah, it's weird. You mentioned him wrestling. You never got into pro wrestling despite the fact that you were a, a great talker and draw. I'm not trying to put pressure on you, but we live in a day and age of independent wrestling where Kent Shamrock, who is a few years older than you, is, is back in the ring. David Arquette, of all people, is 47 wrestling death matches. Now, from what I understand, based on, my, my Wikipedia, based on my Wikipedia research, and we all know Wikipedia is always right, you're a young age of 46. Could we finally True. see Frank the Legend Shamrock in the squared circle? 
For wrestling, maybe. I don't know, just maybe. You know, I, I, for my whole career, I had a bad back. And I got a, I got a spondy in my L3 when I was 16. They're like, you're never going to play sports. You need spinal surgery. So I had this ticking time bomb in my lower spine my entire career. Sometimes I just fall over after creaming an entire gym or, you know, running up a mountain. Sometimes I just fall over. So for me, you know, there was always a physical risk to giving somebody else my body. And when it came time to make a decision on pro wrestling, it was, okay, do I trust somebody else with my body? Or do I move forward with being in total control and just crushing people? And at the end of the day, I went with crushing people because it was just safer and less risk. I know it sounds crazy and more money in that in that industry. So I, I was recruited by uh, ECW back in the day when, when Heyman was running and it was crazy. You know, they were like, we want you. And I went and saw it and I was like, there's no way I'll survive this. You know, I'm going to break my spine. You know, it's ironic, too. They recruited Kurt Angle as well back in the day, probably around the same time they were recruiting you. And Kurt Angle was like... I think he saw Raven or Sandman nailed to like a cross or something with thumbtacks. He's like, hell no, I'm not doing this. And then two years later goes to Deadly B, and of course the rest is history. He's the guy that I'm actually surprised never went into MMA. Me too. And I think he just got banged up, you know, from the wrestling. And then when, when, it was, when the opportunity was there, I don't think there was enough money for him to make that break after the Olympics when he was a big stud. You know, the money wasn't in fighting. Yeah, it was in, it was in wrestling. Yeah. Now, over, now over was, to you. Oh, sorry. Nah, for me it wasn't fighting. <laughs> <laughs> now, now over the years, we we've seen Dana White as stubborn as he is, squashes beef with Ken, squashes beef with with Don Fry to get them into the UFC Hall of Fame. We've spoken about this in the past. Sounds like you're pretty content with everything you've done, and and your your legacy speaks for itself. But realistically, in the next I don't know, let's let's say five years, could you see yourself going into the UFC Hall of Fame? Um, you never know. Maybe. I don't think the Hall of Fame has any legitimacy without the first middleweight champion in there and someone who helped build the sport. So I, don't, I don't worry about it, but I don't... I, yeah. Who knows? Who knows why they wouldn't include me? And who knows what's really going on? And what kind of real sport doesn't include their champion and honor them? So, Yeah. I don't worry too much about it. I'm teaching. I'm teaching fifth grade PE, and we're crushing it. So, <laughs> yeah, you got higher priorities, right? <laughs> I got more important stuff to do. I'm guiding a future generation. <laughs> I can't worry about that. Well said. Well said. I actually had a question. I was talking to my buddy Pat, who's a huge Shamrock fan, and I said, "Hey, man, I'm, I'm chatting with Frank Shamrock." And he said, "Holy crap! I need, I need you to ask him this." I said, "Okay, what do you want me to ask him?" And naturally, of course, Pat sent me a novel. To, to read to you here. So, so he, he wanted me to ask you, Frank, as the sport has grown from similar specialists to a hybrid system of athletes literally training the MMA style, I'm curious, what do you consider to be the next logical evolution in the cage? For example, you know, before it was your know, style versus style. Now we're at the point where we see so many high-level athletes at times. They kind of cancel each other out. Think of maybe the, the second Stephen Wonderboy Thompson and Tyron Woodley fight. What do you think is the next evolution in MMA? The next evolution is presentation. In That's it. There's in terms no of aesthetics? There's no more, yeah, there's no more technical evolutions to make. I did that 15 years ago. Figured the sport out, created a perfect biomechanical system to destroy the human body. That was done like 15 years ago. Everything else has been a repeat or a, a massage of it. Now all the athletes have all the tools that I created all that time ago. 
Now you have to present or you won't be able to get on that stage because the fans don't want to see you. So the new thing is, great, you need to have a complete good system that can win most of the time. And you got to be able to present and sell like a star. That's how you get the big bucks. So I think the next evolution has nothing to do with technical. I think it's literally, you know, speaking class, acting class, you know, all the stuff that I went through uh, to get, you know, in front of the microphone and, and make the big bucks. I think Pat will really like that answer. And on that note, too, when you're talking about presentation, with all these streaming services out right now, DAZN paying a ton of money to Canelo Alvarez, an insane amount of money. They paid a lot of money for Anthony Joshua. HBO getting out of the boxing game. UFC putting a good number of their fights on ESPN Plus, the new ESPN streaming service. On the pro wrestling side, you have WWE Network that has essentially ended the pay-per-view game for pro wrestling, put it on the network for $9.99. From a price standpoint, it seems like a hell of a deal for the fans. But you need exposure in order to make new fans, in order to subscribe to these services and everything. So your presentation could be great, but if not a lot of people are watching it, it's going to be tough to get those eyeballs. If I put you in charge of an MMA organization, let's just say I, Scott Coker called you and said, Hey, Frank, I need you to be my right-hand man and help people watch Bellator, not just on Paramount, but on zone. How do you balance this new MMA market with these streaming services? You do exactly what WWE does, and you invest in the development of the talent from a presentation standpoint. That's it. You, just like the NFL and NBA and every other major sports league where you have to present as part of your uh, role uh, as like Olympians. We're one of the only sports that don't teach you how to be a good human being and how to present properly and how to you know, move that message forward in media. There's no training. You just they put you out there and then you just say whatever you think is right and then that's it. But in a real sport, you know, Dana doesn't take the stage. He trains his people is athletes to be stars and to, to represent the brand properly because of the value that that has. And so we got one of those broken sports uh, where none of that stuff happens. And that's why these guys stay in the cycle of not making enough money, not getting out of the grip, not becoming stars. And every once in a while, you have a few that break out. So do you think that there needs to be more, I guess, I know there's oversaturation. But you think there needs to be more free MMA on TV, and not so much from a standpoint of, hey, we have a new fight every week, you know, a random fight night, a, you know, a Bellator in Italy, and then a Bellator the next day in Hawaii. But, but do you think there needs to be more kind of shoulder ancillary programming that just strictly hype the fighters? There needs to be more of that, but more importantly, these promotional companies need to invest in developmental programs for these talents. You know, one of the reasons I was doing those videos and doing all that stuff is I was working through my skills. These guys don't get a chance to do that. They have to win. They have to fight. They have to do all this stuff. There's a culture that says, no, no, don't worry about that. You got to win first. So you won't even get on the stage. So by the time they get on the stage, they don't really have the skills. They're John Jones. John Jones delivers the most horrible messages ever. And he's a superstar. Why doesn't someone give him some structural training? and help them deliver a better message. That's what's missing in our sport. See, when every other sport, you know, they go in and develop that because the value is when somebody speaks, I used to be the talent spokesman for the UFC. I was charged with getting us back on table. And I would go and present to the networks. Hey, Frank Shamrock, I believe, Mick Mouche, why? And they'd be like, wow, we thought you guys were cavemen fighting in a cage. This is entirely different than what was presented. 
And I was able to move the needle through presentation. I was still a cage fighter. Nothing changed in the sport. Nothing changed at all but the presentation. It's like if we could get that focus back, we got guys jumping out of cages and head stomping people. Like we are so far from a professional, you know, sportsman contest. So I'm guessing you weren't a fan of everything that went down with Habib and Connor. Well, I, I love fighting, but if you look at it from the outside, this was the first time I had my 10 year old girl watch mixed martial arts. And she turned to me and said, dad, I didn't see respect and discipline there. I saw a man jump out of a cage and try to stomp another man's head. I was like, I have no explanation for it. Like I can't, that's not the sport that I, that I helped build. There's something else going on. So that's what I had to tell my little girl, because that's not the sport that I helped build. There's something else going on. That's not, you know, kids can't watch that. That's not a real sport. So that's, I, I love fighting, but that's not sports. Okay. But as far, but as far as the other stuff, like the, like the fun entrances, the, some of the pro wrestling, aspects, oh, that's, that's, that, that's cool. That's, that's cool. amazing. Yeah. yeah. But if I say, okay, here's the rules, here's the thing, yada, yada, yada. And then I just fragrantly break the rules and get away with it. Um, and it's real. That's the thing is if we're playing around, it's fake and we're storytelling at the end of the day, you can always go, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's fake. It's storytelling. Um, when you're legitimately breaking the rules to go hurt people and do things like Connor throwing the, you know, dolly through the bus, like people are getting hurt and it's okay. And that's not okay. Like that's wrong. No, I, I, From a sportsman standpoint, as a martial artist, it, it makes my gut feel funny because it's wrong. You don't do that. You can play the play. But if it's real, like if I came over, socked your mom and knocked her out, everybody would be traumatized. Uh, that's, you don't do it because it's wrong. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it, to me, it's like, as much as I want to see a guy like Conor McGregor fight or John Jones fight or Habib fight, and those guys are, are the best of the best, it, it is very disturbing, you know, the lack of accountability, right? I mean, with, with, the, with the dolly. And to be fair to, to the UFC, not that the UFC has exactly punished these guys or anything, you know, it's not like the commissions really have either. It's not like, the, for whatever reason, the judicial system has either. I don't know. Maybe they have a horseshoe up their ass, as Brock Lesnar once said. But it, it, it is kind of bizarre to see, you know, Conor McGregor could have taken Rose Namunis' head off. Hey, he got a slap on the wrist. I mean, beyond the slap on the wrist. John Jones has screwed up, you know, multiple times. And I think everybody hopes that he does well. But I, I think everybody's just kind of looking at their watch, waiting for the next time he, he, he screws up. And Habib, for the most part, he's been an upstanding citizen. But, you know, you can't hop over to cage and cause a near riot and, you know, put, put fans in danger. There are limits here. And, and I feel like when you don't – to your point, when you don't hold – fighters or any kind of athletes accountable this stuff's just going to keep happening and happening happening till you get to the point of, of no return in some ways and if you don't hold these guys accountable like in the case of john jones you mentioned he's a superstar but nobody's ever kind of sat down and develop him on the other aspect of things outside of the cage if you're like john jones you're not held accountable you're going to keep making the same mistakes and in his case that could be the end of his career yeah and and the problem is 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 the next generation that's what john jones does He's a champion. It's unstoppable. Let's follow him. That's a cultural problem. Now we got a cultural problem. That's that's why I'm not in MMA. It's like I can't can't bring my family in to watch stuff. It's not family friendly, good feeling, socially good entertainment. Um, and who knows if it ever was? But I'm certainly at a stage where it's like what we have now. It's not palatable. It doesn't taste good. So I you know I have to watch other things. But I I love the the entertainment. 
Like to me, it's all entertainment. But there has to be, and I learned this from, you know, talking to the, the commission, the cable companies. You know, there has to be some rules or sportsmanlike thing. Like what happens when someone dies? What are we going to say? Well, we were just killing people and it was a mistake. Like there has to be some structure. Otherwise, there's nothing. It's just fighting. Yeah, and there is some structure in your life, a lot of structure. Not only are, are you a super dad, not only are you a manager to Moro Ronaldo, but from what I understand, you've got some big plans for the next year. Do you want to tell us about them? Um, oh, yeah. Well, I always have big plans every year, but this one, um, I uh, we did a film last year called The Bipolar Rock and Roller about Moro Ronaldo on Showtime, and it had such social impact. It really showed Moro you know, living and thriving sometimes with bipolar, um, you know, through all of his career success at the highs and the lows, it really showed an inside look to what this, you know, illness looks like. And, you know, it's not pretty, but, um, you know, we got thousands and thousands of emails from people who were like, you know, thank you, you know, for the first time I understand, for the first time, you know, I'm not alone. And da, 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 da. So we, we realized there's a social moment coming where, you know, we can help crush this stigma on mental, mental health and mental illness. Um, and our next um, a television series is an eight-part celebrity-driven interview-style series called The Truth About Mental Health. And we're going to sit down with big celebrities and Moro and talk, let them tell their journey, just like in the bipolar rock and roller, and let them help humanize and commonize, you know, mental health and mental illness and help push down, you know, this last social barrier of stigma. And so that's like the big one. That's like my big project um, and my passion project. Uh, and then Nicolette, my daughter, who's 10, she wants to be a, a celebrity Hollywood uh, performer. So I'm uh, beginning to develop her brand and career and, and put her out on the stage. Uh, and that's pretty exciting for me. Um, and then, yeah, I still do the speaking. And what I'm adding to the speaking this year, when I do the keynote speaking, stage speaking for like corporations, like, like Google and the Army, this year I'm going to add a uh, leadership course, which is uh, bare knuckle boxing. So I, I wrote it for Google years ago and I've been sitting on it, but it's so like, it's so intimate and it's so, you know, wake, wake upping when you do bare knuckle boxing with your colleagues. Um, and these are people who've probably never been hit in their life, like never had confrontation other than in a boardroom. And I got them out there bare knuckle boxing and talking about it um, and learning about self-defense and understanding communication skills and leadership skills. And um, that one I'm really excited about launching next year too. And those are the big, big projects I got going on. That's pretty cool, Frank. Well, it's been a, a pleasure to catch up with you here in this interview. Uh, before I let you go, what's one piece of advice you give anybody right now in terms of success? Well, no matter where they are, they could be on the road to entrepreneurship. They could be a, a student. They could be looking to improve their, their fight career. Is there any line that, that sticks out in your head that, that you've taken to heart that could be applied to somebody's life? Sure. Um, I see it across all things, business, entrepreneurship, fighting, training, teaching. Um, and, and, and this is everyone's biggest thing is they don't clearly define who they are and what they want. And that's most people's problem. They start turning the wheel before they truly know what they want and who they are. And that takes a little bit of time to sit down with yourself, work on yourself, figure it out, get some clarity, write out a dream, you know, share the dream and get started. Most people don't get to that dream sharing, that writing it down, that understanding what they truly want. And then they end up following someone else's dream or somebody else's energy. And then they get tired and they jump somewhere else. If you take the time to sit down, uh, we do a life plan. Like I'm like 
plan your hundred years until you're dead and bring that back to me. Because if you don't know what you want to do for your whole life, then you're wasting it. So define your life, define what you want in your dreams and who you really are now. Cause you can always change that. Um, if you're not the guy you want to be, but start with that baseline and a real definition of what the dream is. Wow, man. That's uh, that's, that's pretty powerful stuff. Champion in the cage, certainly a champion out of the cage. The legend, Frank Shamrock. You can follow him online on Twitter, at Frank Shamrock. Anywhere else we can find you online? Uh, I am everywhere at Frank Shamrock, and on YouTube, I am at The Frank Shamrock. Actually, oh, man, I see we got some competition here. Frank Shamrock started a YouTube channel. At the moment, you got almost 5,000 subscribers. Good stuff, man. You haven't stopped the YouTube thing. I like it. I'll pause there. I literally stopped like 10 years ago and I'm firing it back up again. I have 5 million views and I've almost done nothing but occasionally drop a video. So I'm getting serious in this new year. I've got instructional videos, my speaking videos coming up and I'm really using it as a platform to teach and help uh, develop and move things forward because I'm too old to go out on the road anymore. Well, that's great, man. We really do appreciate the time. It was a pleasure speaking as always, Frank. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Fred. Thank you, buddy.